Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 60. This week we have a special show for you. First, we're going to run our short story, The Key to Your Heart is Made of Brass, by John R. Fultz. And following that, we have an interview with the author himself. So, let's dive right in, shall we? John R. Fultz lives in the North Bay area of California, but he grew up in Kentucky. His latest novel, The Testament of Tall Eagle, was actually released yesterday, June 8th, from Ragnarok Publications. John's Books of the Shaper trilogy include Seven Princes, Seven Kings, and Seven Sorcerers, from Orbit Books. His first short story collection is The Revelations of Zhang, a series of interrelated tales born in the pages of Weird Tales and Black Gate. John's work has also appeared in Year's Best Weird Fiction, Volume 1, That Is Not Dead, Shattered Shields, Lightspeed, Year One, Way of the Wizard, Cthulhu's Reign, The Book of Cthulhu Two, and other fine publications. You can learn more about him at his website or find him on Twitter. All links on the Triple F. The story is very ably read for you by Eric Luke. Eric is the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake, and the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman. He wrote and directed the not-quite-human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills. And it's available free on iTunes and at quillhammer.com. So, wind up your heart spring, or throw another lump of anthracite on your fires, and give a listen to The Key to Your Heart is Made of Brass by John R. Fultz.
Wake up. Something is wrong. Greasy orange light smears the dark. Only one of your optical lenses is functional. The walls are slabs of corroded metal with rust patterns like dumb staring phantoms. You lie awkwardly across the oily flagstones of an alley where curtains of black chains obscure the night. Bronze lanterns hang from those chains, but most of them are dead, lightless, like your left optical. Struggling to hands and knees, you realize your porcelain face has been shattered. White shards gleam on the alley floor between puddles of greenish scum. You lift a gloved hand to explore your ruined visage. The upper left side took the brunt of the blow. Your fingers brush across the silver skull beneath the missing porcelain. This won't do at all. To be seen without one's face, it could damage your reputation. It might even be illegal. That same blow, the one you don't quite remember, must have dislodged your left optical. There it is now, lying among the porcelain fragments, a thumb-sized orb of blue glass. Removing your gloves, you wipe the scum from its glistening surface and carefully reattach it to the vitreous filaments inside your left socket. Much better. Your depth perception is restored. Inside its silver casement, your tender brain begins processing images from the repaired optical. You slide the blue orb carefully back into place, grateful it wasn't damaged. Now at least you can see, and perhaps remember... The girl, the doxy, you remember her ceramic face, exquisitely formed with tiny lips painted crimson, the gentle amber of her opticals peeking through the beautiful mask, her gown a flowing affair of scarlet satin and black lace. The red fabric hugs the supple curves of her torso before spreading out to engulf her lower body. You met her in the alley beneath the dead lanterns. By that fact alone, you know what she must be. She is a beatific, like you, but not like you at all. She's a prostitute. Your bodies are sculpted to the same degree of slim perfection. Your face is designed for maximum aesthetic value. Yet she is a creature of the streets, the gutters, a plaything of her nameless clients. It dawns on you with a sick familiarity that you are one of those clients. You snap out of the vision, frightened by rushing memories. Your waistcoat is stained by the filth of the alley, but you brush off the grit as best you can. Near a receptacle of eroded copper tubing, you find your top hat. Your expensive walking stick appears to be gone, stolen. Perhaps it was the bludgeon that shattered your face. The pommel was a bronze orb sculpted in the likeness of a grinning toad. A formidable weapon, but it had done you no good. Your attacker, however, had found it a useful tool. The purple neon glow of the street is a watery vision at the end of the alley. 
before you can go out there and find another face to wear. You must look presentable. There are certain rules of beatific conduct, and you must adhere. Reputation is everything in the Urbil. Checking your neck kerchief, you discover the emptiness in your breast pocket. A shock of panic runs through your lean limbs, and the gears of your joints grind like creaking doors. Your fingers invade the pocket, searching, but finding nothing. The key to your heart is gone. Horror rushes down your throat like a bitter oil. The gentle whirring and clicking in your chest cavity is now the sound of ticking dread. You sink to your knees, searching the alley. Where is the key? You remember inserting it into the narrow slot in your bare chest last morning, turning it full round ninety-nine times, enough to power the gears and cogs and wheels and springs of your beatific body for another twenty-four hours, winding the clockwork mechanism that is your living core. The key is made of shining yellow brass, and like all beatific heart keys, it is one of a kind, a customized symbol of your status. It's not here. You paw at your trousers and find that, ironically, your pocket watch has not been stolen. It is almost 3 a.m. You have six hours to get a replacement key made. The alternative is unthinkable, winding down to an inanimate collection of useless parts, while your brain rapidly dies inside its silver casement. The doxy. She must have taken the key. But that makes no sense. She, or someone like her, clubbed you over the head with your own walking stick and stole your heart key. Why would anyone else want it? It will not wind the heart of any other beatific. Its only value is the daily function it plays in keeping you, and only you, alive. This is the course of your existence. Wake, wind the heart key, get dressed, and go about the business of your day. You had never considered the possibility of a day without your key. You have never considered what that would mean. Duplicating one's heart key is a high crime, Beatifics have been dragged off to prison for contemplating it aloud. The potentate's decree was one key for one heart. We must preserve our individuality or risk becoming soulless copies of one another. The words of Tribune Antaeus, as broadcast on high-frequency transistor during the last key duplication scandal. Fear breaks the icy stillness of your reverie. The key isn't here. So there's only one option. You must solicit the keymaker. And you have six hours. You pull the top hat down low to disguise your shattered cheek. At this late hour, no one of any consequence is likely to be about. At least not in this quarter of the Urbile, where beatifics seldom wander. Here, among the decaying spires of ancient metal, the bulwarks of rust and corrosion, the moldering and brittle bones of bygone industrialism. Decrepit factories have become squatters' kingdoms, and iron bridges span brackish waterways where finned scaly things slither and swim. 
Lanterns gleam atop iron posts, the flames of viridian gas dancing in their soiled globes. This is the rusted zone, where the metals of previous ages have gathered like flotsam washed upon a dirty beach. You would never come here in the light of day, but you have needs, and your wife has been dead thirty years. A man, even a beatific man, can only hold out so long. As you shuffle into the deserted street, your elastic skin tightens. The sign of a brewing rabidity in the atmosphere. A storm will break soon. Your time with the doxy comes back to you now. A shameful memory of fulfilling base desires. This isn't the first time you've crawled among the rust to seek the company of whores. You always feel pity for them, even as you enjoy the pleasures of their trade. You remember this one well. Your gloved fingers against the base of her skull. The golden glow of her opticals behind the porcelain facade. Revulsion intrudes as you remember the slick softness of her thoughts. The way your consciousness slid hungrily into hers. You almost feel sorry for her. And all her kind. Those who open their minds to the nearest paying stranger. Until you remember what she did to you. Broke your face and stole the key to your heart. Her psyche was a red and pulsing universe. You soared there like some winged beast, looking down upon the nooks and crannies of intellect from the lofty cloud realm of her thought-sphere. You did not consider the countless number of other men who had invaded her mentality. Somehow, this never matters in the throes of psychic ecstasy. You played with stray impulses, gnawed on the raw assumptions of her personal reality, dominated her cognition. Such a satisfying conquest of the female mind by the lusty intelligence of the male. She was sweet, this one, yet something untouchable lingered beyond the curtains of her memory, something she refused to share with any client, including you. Your thoughts slammed against those gates like battering rams. You wanted to know her every secret. You wanted to claim her utterly, never caring that you might discover what caused her to fall from grace, why this beatific maiden became a doxy trollop. In the heady grip of your blind need, you strove to penetrate deeper. That's when it must have happened. Someone in that dingy alley grabbed your bronze-topped cane and brought it down against your forehead with all force. The mental link was broken immediately as you lost consciousness. Your mind yanked from hers as your body fell to the filthy flagstones. She must have had a partner. But why? What could she, they, possibly gain by stealing your heart key? If they wanted you dead, they could have killed you right there. The wind picks up, pelting you with clouds of sandy rust. The twisting street, you never caught the name, is narrow, and few other figures move in the pre-rabid gloom. Outside the doorway of a ramshackle saloon, a pair of clatterpocks ramble noisily, 
The neon placard above the door reads, The Distended Bladder. Three more clatterpocks lumber across the street ahead of you, heading for the tavern. Their cylindrical bodies rumble and clang, supported by thin iron legs and metal slab feet. Their chest furnaces burn hot, exuding foul vapors and smokes from the various holes, tubes, and vents placed about their grotesque frames. They turn oval heads toward you as you walk past, staring with flat optical lenses of gray glass. Poor souls. You do not envy their mean existence, hearts fueled by chunks of burning anthracite, their days spent working mindless jobs just to afford the black rocks that keep them ambulatory. They are the poor of the urbile, the wretched working class. If they recognize you as a beatific, they may assault you. Class distinctions are dangerous among the rust. If they knew you were the head of House Honoré, what would they do? Tear you apart and sell your gears for scrap? Now it comes to you. Could the Doxy have known? She might have been someone important at one time. She might even be an ancestral enemy, someone your father or grandfather ruined in some forgotten business dealing. Could the theft of your heart key be some form of belated revenge? One of the clatterpox shouts something as you hurry past, but you turn the corner without looking back. The sound of their rattling bodies follows you down the street, but you turn and turn again, finally losing them in the shadows of a lightless thoroughfare. Here the sky is clear, and you see the swirling constellations of night. Unfortunately, this welcome sight does you no good, because the rabidity has arrived. It swoops down the dark streets like some predatory bird of legend, a tightening of the air itself, a freezing and cracking of atmospheric forces. It keens in your ears like a wailing teapot, and the wind takes your hat into the night. Fissures in the fabric of space-time erupt along the street. You've walked right into the heart of this one. The air splits open, not six yards away, and you see another world revealed beyond the throbbing gash. It's green and steaming, a jungle like the ones from ancient botanical texts. Colossal lizards feast on one another, tearing flesh, skin, and tendon with terrible fangs. The sounds of their shrieking flows from the vacuity. The gravity of that primeval world pulls at your lapels. If you let it, it will pull you through and your life will wind down in that nameless wilderness. The gears of your legs grind as you pull away from the hovering fissure. The wind screams. You walk against it and pass another vacuity, a rip in existence that pulses and expands, bleeding gravity. Beyond this one, you see a night-dark sea and a distant shore lined with luminous towers. Golden-skinned beings sail the waters in skiffs of pale wood. They must see the vacuity from their side as well, because their glowing emerald opticals turn toward you as you walk past. The vision dies 
as the vacuity begins to shrink. You stumble into the dying wind as the storm subsides. A dozen more vacuities glimmer in your vicinity. You ignore them. At a meeting of four streets ahead, you see a clatterpox staring at one of the fissures as it closes completely. Then his round head turns toward you with a fresh burst of vapor and a hissing sound. Is it the same one who called after you? He stares uncertainly in the post-rebidity calm. You step toward the windows of an all-night merchant on the corner. Above the doorway, the name Hofstein's gleams in torrid blue neon. You walk inside and find yourself hemmed by rows of crowded shelves. The proprietor is a handsome beatific, but he greets you with a suspicious glare as you approach the display of porcelains. No time to be choosy. You pick the first masculine face on the stand and carry it to the counter. You're out late, Sir Honoré, says the proprietor. Some wild party, eh? Something like that, you say. Must have gotten a bit rough, he nods towards your busted face. You say nothing, avoiding his glare. Anything else? No, you say. Yes, a hat. That one. You pick a simple black topper. It's been nearly an hour since you awoke in the alley. You must move quicker. Seventeen brilliance, says the merchant. Put it on my account, you say. Earlier tonight you emptied your pockets to pay the doxy. Very well. Have a good morning, Sir Honoré. You cast your old face into the store's dustbin and replace it with this splendid new one. New hat sitting firmly on your head, you head back into the street. Making for the steeple road, you notice a shadowy figure trailing a block behind you. You stop near a pile of metal sculpted into a hideous beast and stare back at the pursuer. A clatterpox, of course. Now you can hear his hissing, rattling locomotion as he draws nearer. He carries a club, or a dark blade, in one of his metal fists. You cannot tell which. Now you run. The rusted zone becomes a blur of gray, brown, and dirty neon, and you ache to put it all behind you. The clatterpox could never move as fast as you. Soon you see the steeple gate and the faces of its stone gargoyles glare at you like old friends. You speak the word of command, and the gate opens. On its other side the streets are well lit, with spherical lanterns kept shiny and clean. As the iron gate closes behind you, you realize the clatterpox might know the command word as well. So you hurry, shuffling between the houses of ornate stone and their lawns of crushed glass, until you see the spiked fence of the Keymaker's estate. A great brass bell hangs at the gate, and you hate to ring it so late. Your pocket watch says 4.03 a.m., but it can't be helped. You ring the bell at once. Wait. Again. No lights go on inside the stone mansion. You ring it a third time, and notice the front gate is ajar. You pull it open just enough to creep inside. 
The lawn is immaculate, filled with sculptures of glass and stone in the shapes of skulls, fantastic machinery, and abstract forms recalling the organic age. Your shoes sound far too loud as you walk across the crushed glass toward the keymaker's door. He will be annoyed to be awakened so late or so early, but you will offer him whatever price he demands to cast a mold of your chest lock and make a new key before 9 a.m. You have little choice. His workshop is attached to the mansion, a domed miniature factory of green stone, possibly jade. Certainly you cannot be the first panicked beatific who has come to him after hours with a lost key emergency. The front doors are hanging open, and a single lantern burns somewhere inside. Something is not quite right here. The estate is not large, but the nearest neighbor is several hundred yards away. Perhaps someone out there heard you ring the gate bell. Or perhaps not. But the front door should not be open. You almost stumble over a lump of metal at your feet. A two-headed canine lying on its side. A lean body of iron and bronze covered in fuzzy, elastic skin. Both its necks have been broken, and the inner workings of its guts have been torn out. A scattered mess of cogs and gears litters the foyer. You walk cautiously toward the dim light, already knowing what you will find. Ahead lies the parlor, where the keymaker keeps his bookshelves. You were here twelve years ago for a party honoring his fourteenth decade of service. You remember his great easy chair, where he sat and entertained his guests with stories of his youth. Now you slip into that curtained room and see him sitting in the same chair, dressed in a satin nightrobe. The lantern flickers unsteadily on the table beside him. He is headless, his body reclining on the cushioned velvet, gloved hands resting on his lap. His head lies a few feet away, fractured porcelain cheek against the burgundy carpet. Scattered bits of copper and wire spill across his chest and lap. Once again, fear steals your ability to move. The keymaker is dead. You press your ear to his breast, but you hear no mechanized whirring, no clicking of cogs or sighing springs. The lantern oil burns low. This happened hours ago. You know his brain has died inside that severed skull. He is gone. You stumble backwards until you fall into the soft embrace of a couch. The keymaker was not a true beatific. He did not inherit his title. He worked to earn it. He was a laborer, basically. He had no fortune or noble lineage. But he was a man of honor, and he was the only man who could save your life. A noise breaks the silence of the dead man's study. Something heavy, moving on the terrace. No, in the foyer. You glance around for a weapon, an exit, something, anything. An ancient cutlass hangs on the wall, blade eaten by rust. You pull it down and brandish it, fists wrapped around the hilt. You have no idea how to fight with blade or pistol. The sound moves nearer, heavy footsteps, now the hissing of steam through a vent. You remember the sound 
of the clatterpox following you. And sure enough, he stands in the doorway of the parlor, a terrible thing of corroded iron, leaking pistons, purple vapors, and swiveling joints. He stares at you with his flat, gray opticals. His mouth is a horizontal slit, dividing round chin from oval head. He sighs at you. No, it's the sound of hot air leaking from his heart furnace. The grill of his chest emits orange light, where the anthracite burns hot. Honore, he says, voice flat like the ringing of tin. We have something you want. Now you recognize the weapon he carries in his left hand. It is your walking stick, with a bronze-toed head. Who are you? You wave the useless cutlass at the clatterpox like some protective talisman, but you know it offers no protection. My name is Flux. You're with the Doxy? Yes. You assaulted me and stole the key to my heart? Yes. Why? The clatterpox shrugs its rusted shoulders. Something pings inside its whirring guts. Because you have... Wealth. We need it. Extortion. The device of cowards. Your words sound brave, but terror swims in your chest cavity, runs along your plastic skin like spilled oil. That may be. But we have your brass key. We want a hundred thousand brilliance. Bring them to the Well of Bones at sunrise, or we will drop your key in the well, and you will never find it. You will wind down. Your brain will rot and die. You consider this. Your ancestral fortune is vast. You won't miss a hundred thousand brilliants. Besides, there are no other options. You killed the keymaker. Of course, says the clatterpox. Don't be late. He thumps across the foyer and out into the courtyard, then beyond the gate and down the road into the rusted zone. You lay the ancient sword down at the keymaker's feet. There is no time to mourn for him. The sun will rise in less than two hours. You run along the winding avenues of the good hills, ignoring the stone domiciles of your fellow beatifics. Rarely do any lights glow in the oval windows at this rude hour. You dash north, heading toward your manor house, and the fractured moon rises above the palace of the potentates at the top of the great hill. Its crumbling walls and crenellated towers are older than the Urbile itself, and large enough to house a second city, which, according to rumor, it does. The potentates live inside its walls of mossy stone, and not even beatifics are allowed to sully its precincts with their presence. Once per year, the potentates emerge for the Parade of Iniquities, 
carried by clockwork horses through the streets of the Erbil, wrapped in their dark robes and chains of gold, their bulbous heads veiled, the dark shadows of their opticals scanning the populace in silent judgment. They are terribly tall, the potentates, hence the immensity of their stone citadel. Rumors speak also of the labyrinth below that towering fortress, a dungeon into which only the most evil and unrepentant of lawbreakers are cast. You imagine the doxy and her murderous clatterpox cast into that dark maze, pursued by terrible ancient things. The Honoré estate lies three miles from the outer wall of the great palace. You reach it an hour before sunrise and race through your front doors toward the sealed portal that guards the lower vaults. Once the house was full of servants, semi-organic toadlings imported from stabilized vacuities. They kept the manse from disintegrating and the cobwebs from accumulating. Now, many years after Sjorma wound down and left you, your outer garden is a hideous collection of weeds and vine. Your walls are clammy and the stone crumbles a bit more each year. You often sit here, in the heart of your inherited power, and contemplate the transitory nature of things. At times you can almost feel the pillars and the stone slabs of your walls decaying slowly into blackened sand. Stone is no more permanent than metal. You realized this long ago. Your stone mansion will one day collapse, as will all the beatific dwellings and eventually the stone palace itself will tumble down upon the bloated skulls of the potentates. Will anyone still be alive when that day comes? At the bottom of the spiral stair you speak the word of lineage, and the round vault door swings open. Inside a hung lantern lights itself automatically, and a world of clashing colors fills the chamber. The floor is hidden under pile after pile of brilliance, precious stones in all the shades of ruby, amber, emerald, topaz, sapphire, violet, opal, and diamond. Here is the great fortune that your ancestors built. And on the four walls of this chamber, emerging from the gray stone in bas-relief, are the faces of those ancestors. Your father your grandfather, your great-grandfather, and a dozen more, going back a thousand years to the last organic age. Their opticals open and stare at you with flame-bright lenses. Somehow, as you wade into the room and begin scooping brilliance into an iron chest, their stone lips move, and they speak in whispering voices. You try to ignore them. You know their cruel wisdom. You've long passed the days when you would come down here for advice. You learned eventually that your ancestors were just as ignorant of the world as you. Their accumulation of wealth and title was their only virtue. What are you doing, René? asks the stone face of your father. You fool, seethes your grandfather's visage, wasting our wealth 
again. I need this. All of it, you say, not bothering to meet their radiant opticals. Leave me alone. Leave him alone, he says. Your father again. Still haven't learned to respect your elders? What are you doing? asks another face, some older predecessor. Each succeeding member of the family lived longer than the one who came before. What could be so costly? I've lost the key to my heart, you shout, overcome by strange emotions. I have to buy it back. By all the gods that never were, swears your grandfather's face. That old scam again. You're being taken for a rube, boy. Another stone face speaks. Someone from terribly far down the line of ages. All of these stones are worthless, you know, says the face. Bits of worthless glass. The potentates manufacture these by the million. Nonsense, says your father's visage. Their worth is what made us a great family. No, he is right, says another ancient face. The last true jewels were lost ages ago. This is all fakery. Our wealth is an illusion. You scrape more armloads of the brilliance into the chest, hurrying. To stay in this chamber too long will drive you mad. Don't listen to their babble. They are liars and fools. And they are dead. Rene, says another nameless face of stone. All wealth is an illusion. When you join us, you will understand. Join us, says another face. You are so close already. Join us, says another one through stone lips. Shut up, you shout. The faces grow still, but their fiery opticals stare at you. You close the chest of brilliance, heft it to your shoulder, and leave the vault. The door slams behind you, like the thunder of a collapsing empire. You race up the stairs and check your pocket watch. Less than an hour until sunrise. You run out the front door, cross the overgrown courtyard, and head down the hillside. Early risers are lighting their lanterns as you pass the gates of beatific mansions. Once through the steeple gate, you head into the rusted zone, directly toward the well of bones, clutching the chest in your tireless arms. A precious ransom of a hundred thousand worthless brilliants. Along the avenue of copper lungs, you nearly stumble into a fizzle shade as it manifests in a haze of wispy hair and antique clothing. It stares at you with transparent opticals pleading for help. They always want the same thing, the completion of unfinished business. Something left undone before they perished. Please... This one moans. My name is Henri. I left two children behind when I died. Will you find them and tell them about my hidden gold? You died three thousand years ago, you mutter, shuffling under the weight of your burden. 
Your children are long dead, too. The phantom follows you, blinking in and out of existence, losing its purchase in the living world. Please, it wails. The children will starve. You must help me. I bled to death in this gutter. Don't leave them alone. Piss off, you shout, a stab of guilt in your clicking chest. Behind you, the fizzle shade blinks into nothingness. The light of pre-dawn limbs the corroded skyline with an amber glow, the exact shade of the doxy's opticals. You scurry along the streets of twisted metal, avoiding crowds of clatterpox on their way to the factories. Gendarmes in black trench coats and stovepipe hats patrol the streets now. Their faces are clusters of optical lenses, swiveling in multiple directions at once, observing the early morning activity, always alert for anything out of the ordinary. Suddenly you realize that you are out of the ordinary. You're exactly the kind of anomaly the gendarmes look for as they enforce the laws of the Urbil, alone, beatific, carrying a heavy chest through the pre-dawn rust. And if that chest were to be inspected, a fortune in brilliance. You walk quietly now, hoping to avoid their attention. If there were time, you might tell them of your blackmailer's plot and let the potentate's justice fall upon the doxy and her confederate. But by the time they investigated your claims, the sun would rise, your heart key would be lost forever, and you would be dead. No other course now, but the well of bones. You rush past the steaming grates, the crooked frames of aluminum huts, and cross a bridge painted with the sigils of feuding clatterpox gangs. Luckily, at this hour, only working citizens will be up and about. There it is, the walled plaza containing the Well of Bones. You walk through the open gate, glad there are no guards here. Who would care to guard a worthless pit of bones? This place is haunted by the lowest of scavengers, those who climb the sheer walls of the pit for miles deep and crawl back up with a bag of bones to sell for a few copper bits or trade for drugs. Bone used to be highly valued in the Urbil, but nobody wants it anymore. It is a relic of the organic times. Now you stand before the great pit, among the piles of scrap metal and the crude huts of bone divers. There is no time to think about how completely vulnerable you are in this place, because the sun has broken the jagged horizon. And you see the doxy and her clatterpox enter the plaza. She moves gracefully across the muddy scrapyard, as out of place as yourself. Today her fine gown is green, the color of damp moss, her black hair. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Is a tall oval secured with a spiral of copper wires. Her face is the one you remember, superb with its tiny red lips, arcing painted eyebrows, and the delicate curve of perfect cheeks. Her opticals glimmer at you, although with malice or amusement, you cannot say. The clatterpox named Flux shambles beside her, filling the air with his noxious exhalations. Sir Honoré, she greets you, her voice that of a hybrid beatific. You would never guess she was a mind harlot if you met her on an avenue in the good hills. So glad you could make it. You sit the chest of brilliance at her feet. You don't bother to return her greeting or to remove your hat. She deserves no respect from you. The clatterpox opens the lid of the chest and looks inside. He nods his bulky head, and the doxy reaches inside her cleavage. She produces... The brass key that means your life. She offers it to you in the palm of one white-gloved hand. Why? you ask, taking the key from her. You need to wind your gears soon, but you have about two hours left. And you must know, if she will tell you. As the clatterbox lifts the chest in its metal arms, she reaches to caress its grimy cheek. You would not understand, Honoré. I doubt that I will, you say. But I've paid a heavy price. I deserve an explanation. The doxy smiles and turns her amber lenses toward you again. I did it. For my lover, she says. Your neck gears nearly slip. You love this clatterpox. Yes, she says. So you do know the concept of love. I am well versed in matters historical, madame, as well as the poetic arts. She nods, the morning light glinting off her delicate nose. But do you know that love is real? Have you ever felt it? You mock me. No, Honoré, 
she says. Not at all. Extort, yes, but never mock. I, too, am a beatific. Your behavior suggests otherwise. We are this way, you and I, only because we could afford the process. The process. Beatification. You recall it, three centuries past. A rite of passage, your father called it. The shedding of useless organic bulk, everything but the all-important brain, center of the living intellect. Beatification is open to anyone, she reminds you. Anyone who can pay a surgeon's fees. She looks at the clatterpox flux again, and he seems to smile, though his iron jaw will not permit such an action. You did this for him. You say it for her, accepting the preposterousness of it. You wish to beatify him so you two can be together. You are wise, Honoré, she says. It is abominable, you say. According to whom? she asks. Once Flux's living brain rests inside a beatific body, he will be no different than you or I. We really cannot thank you enough, Sir Honoré. She turns to walk away with her clatterpox lover and your stolen brilliance. And you want to say something, a last comment or condemnation. But your mind is blank. You squeeze the brass key in your hand, taking comfort from its firmness. The doxy's head erupts like a burst lantern. A shower of porcelain shards, silver fragments, and brain tissue assaults your waistcoat and shirt. The clatterpox drops the chest and it cracks open, spilling brilliance across the muddy ground. You stand there, numb, paralyzed by shock and confusion— as the black-coated gendarmes rush into the plaza, leaping from walls and gates, bone-divers scamper from their illegal habitations and climb the walls like pale spiders. The gendarmes carry pistols and rifles, one of which has ended the doxy's life. The enforcers turn their clustered opticals toward the clatterpox. The rusted monstrosity falls to its knees before the dead doxy cradling her headless corpse. Inside the open hollow of her neck, gears and springs pop and grind into stillness. The clatterpox pulls something from his side, a key that he inserts between her sculpted breasts. The gendarmes believe it a weapon and begin firing you leap to the ground to avoid the hail of bullets. Lying there, so close to the doxy and her lover, you watch him turning her heart key, trying to restart her life. But her head is ruined. Her brain, the center of all life functions, spread across the ground, a litter of shredded blue flesh.
Yet, why is there no blood or cranial fluid? Her beatific brain wasn't alive at all. The organ was dried, congealed, preserved. Is every beatific brain like hers? Nothing but dead, decayed flesh? The implications of this question run through your mind, yet refuse to take root. The gendarme's bullets bounce off the clatterpox's iron body to create holes like ruptured pustules. He turns the heart key again and again, heedless of their assault. Eventually, they stop shooting and approach him on foot. The vapors from his vents and exhaust pipes flow black and heavy now. They tear him away from the doxy's corpse and secure his arms with titanium shackles. You start to rise, but two tall gendarmes lift you sharply to your feet. One of them stares at you with his cluster of opticals, nine blue-green lenses, bright with the caress of dawn. Sir René Honoré, the gendarme asks through some mouth aperture hidden below his high collar. You nod, still too stunned to speak. By order of the Tribune, you are under arrest. What? I've done nothing. I was blackmailed. We understand, says the gendarme, his anterior opticals already scouring the rest of the plaza. To blackmail a beatific is a high crime, as is the paying of any funds to blackmailers. You broke the law. You will face justice. You watch as they gather up the body and assorted remains of the doxy and cast her into the well of bones. You know she will fall for several minutes before she reaches the bottom. There she will lie among the antediluvian bones until perhaps some bone-diver gathers up her parts to sell a scrap. All that is left of her are the shards of an exquisite face, a few slivers of porcelain lying in the mud. The clatterpox flux, wheezes, and coughs as they drag him away. The gendarmes leave the brilliance lying trampled in the muck. Mere bits of colored glass beneath their notice. You remember what the Elder Stone Face said about the jewels? And you laugh as they lead you out of the plaza and into the rust. You're still laughing when they haul you before the veiled tribune on his high bench, and later when they drag you across the stone bridge and deep beneath the walls of the crumbling palace. In the endless dark of the labyrinth, your laughter draws nameless things closer. Soon you will join your ancestors on the wall of the sunken vault. A laughing face of stone. I'm such a sucker for steampunk fantasy. Let's hear what the author has to say about this being steampunk and or fantasy. Here's the interview. Enjoy. 
Welcome, Fablers. Here is your host, Nicola Seaton-Clark, and I'm very lucky this evening to be interviewing the author of one of our stories today. John R. Fultz, please say hello. Hey, how's it going? Great to be here. Thank you so much for uh, interviewing with us today. Um, you have written a story uh, which we are featuring on our show tonight. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the story is called The Key to Your Heart is Made of Brass. And it's a, it's a rather odd story. Um, it might be the weirdest thing I've ever written. I'm not sure. Uh, at one time I said it was. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a strange, I call it a weird fantasy. Some people have, have labeled it steampunk, although I'm not really a steampunk guy. So if it is steampunk, it's my version of steampunk. So I don't know what that means either. Um, <laughs> it sounds interesting anyway. Well, thank you. I hope so. It's, um, it's a strange dystopic universe where people live in clockwork bodies that are fueled by one of two things. You either have a key that you wind in the center of your chest that keeps your mechanisms working and hopefully keeps your brain alive and your delicate silver skull or your, your lower class being called a clatterpox and you, you have a tiny furnace at the heart of you, which burns on anthracite, small pieces of coal. Mm -hmm. So I guess um, I've taken some uh, some aspect of the class war and infused it with strange fantasy and weird stuff. I don't know really what I do. I just write and it comes out. This is definitely a, a strange story that hit a chord with a lot of people for whatever reason. Okay, so wh where did the idea for this universe come from? I mean, you said it, you just write and it comes out. Did, was there a germ of an idea, something that, that set it off? Um. This story actually was inspired by my first trip to the World Fantasy Convention. Uh, I live in Northern California, and I had never been to the WFC, and it came to San Jose, so I um, got the full experience. I was living in San Jose at the time, so I didn't even have to travel to go to this World uh, Convention, which hops around the globe every year. So I went there and um, did a lot of uh, you know thinking at the various panels, talking with my friends, uh, Daryl Schweitzer, Fred Durbin, other people of uh, the Blackgate crew, John O'Neill, Howard Jones, and those guys, and just really felt so inspired. This is the most inspiring convention I'd ever been to in my life. I've been to a lot of comic conventions before that, but I hadn't been to many uh, literary conventions. Uh -huh. And all of the stuff that I was taking in just kind of manifested itself in this strange story, and I felt like it's time for me to move on to a new level, you know, um, I had written a lot of short stories before that, but nothing, most of them were what you might call more traditional fantasy. I wanted to break out of that mold. And I'd also written a, a couple of horror and sci-fi tales too. Like I'm very comfortable in what I do as a fantasy writer, but every now and then I like to jump out of my comfort groove and do something totally new for me. So this story represented that, the, the embrace of a strange post-industrial society. There's lots of, um, weird phenomena that happens unexplained in the mm -hmm. story too. And you get a sense that this world is just full of strange weirdness that is you know, manifesting itself. Okay. So as to what direct directly inspired it, I, I'm not really sure, but I think it was definitely the, uh, the, the fun that I had and the inspiration that I took away from that world fantasy convention. Okay. I mean, it sounds like a very complicated universe. Are there any more stories set in that, uh, the, the herbal universe well it's interesting because when i when i wrote this story i sent it off 
for about four years, nobody would publish it. It got rejected 10 times. I'm not kidding you. I tracked every rejection. I do this with every one of my stories. Oh, yeah, me so too. Yeah, because I don't want to send the story back to a place where it's already been rejected. So I sent the story basically everywhere that was accepting any kind of, you know, that story of this type of sci-fi fantasy, weird fantasy genre. And it got rejected 10 times. And a couple of those rejections took about a year each, you know, pretty large publications that were, you know, just kind of sitting on it. And I always got these weird comments like, this is a great story or a great writing or whatever, but we just, it's not suited our, for our needs. You know? So, you know, as a writer, you have to just suck that up and go on. So after about 10 years, my friend Pierre Comtois, who does a magazine called Fungi, it's a, it's a 30-year-old magazine that comes out intermittently. He was putting together a massive 20th anniversary, 30th anniversary issue. And he said, um, do you have anything that you want to contribute to the magazine? I said, sure, here, use this story. It's a great story, but I haven't been able to, to place it anywhere else. So I told him, you don't even have to worry about paying me. Just getting the story in, in publication, you know, would be a, a thrill for me. And so he liked it so much. He said, do you have any other stories? Like, just like you said, do you have any other stories? Meanwhile, I had written a second story in this universe called, um, Flesh of the City, Bones of the World. And I thought it was even better than the first. And um, 10 rejections, once again. <laughs> this was in a, in a one to two period. I sent it, I must have sent it to the exact same places. I'd have to check my list. But once again, over a, uh, several couple, it was between one and two years, just that story, the sequel, got rejected. Pierre took both stories, ran them both in the, the 30th issue of Fungi. Mm-hmm. And they were both there. One at the beginning of this this massive issue that he put together was about 420 pages long. Wow! So at the beginning was my key story, and at the end was my flesh of this flesh story, which was the sequel. Now Pierre was such a huge fan, and the stories got great uh, response. Laird Barron picked Key for his year's best weird fiction volume one, and uh, I was really thrilled by that because I had never had anything picked for a best of anything yet <laughs> at this point in my career. And uh, Laird Barron is, you can't get a, a better horror writer, a better writer in general than Laird Barron. Yeah, no, so definitely. It was great after being rejected 10 times on, on the story to have somebody publish it and then someone say, hey, this is one of the best things that came out this year. Yeah, that kind so, of vindication doesn't come along a, a lot, does it? Not at all. And so Pierre said, how about a third story, John? You got to give me a third story. And I was pretty reluctant. I was <laughs> like, I think I'm done with this. You know, I don't think I, but it's rare as a writer too, until you get you know famous for people to, to request specific things from you, you know, like, would you give me another story with this universe or that universe? And so it, it kind of tumbled around in my mind for about a year or two before it took shape. And I finally wrote a third story. And um, I gave that to Pierre to run. It's going to be running in Fungi with, um, he's going to publish a new issue of that to coincide with the Necronomicon, which takes place in August up in uh, New England sort of an HPL Lovecraft uh, festival yeah, yeah. that they do every, mm-hmm. every year, every other year. Anyway, um, so that's going to be a third story. But the thing about that third story is when I wrote it, it's called The Rude Mechanicals and The Highwayman. Um, and I wrote that story, it opened up doors for me that had previously not been open. And I started to realize, you know, now I see how to do a bigger a bigger tale here. Now I see the, the, the edges of the game board where I, as I couldn't before. Mm-hmm. And that inspired me to 
turn it into a novel. So I'm actually working on a novel set in this universe right now. Oh, great. Yeah, no title yet, but uh, it's very it's very early. I'm about three chapters in. Um, but the third story will be appearing in, in Fungi in this August, so I'll be uh, announcing that on my website. So. Well, I'm sure all of the Farfetch Fables fans will be waiting on tenterhooks for that one. I hope so. I hope they like it. I mean, I'm really looking forward to this uh, podcast. This is a really great – you guys have a really great show, and uh, I'm really honored to be on it. Thank you very much. So um, I would like to talk to you today also about your new novel, The Testament of Tall Eagle. Um, oh, it's, great, yes. It's coming from uh, Ragnarok Publications on June 8th. Can you tell us a little bit more about it, whet our appetites just a touch? Absolutely, yeah. Tall Eagle is a tribal fantasy. It's It couldn't be more different from Key and the, the Key stories. It's um, set in the early 1800, uh, I'm sorry, early 18th century, around 1700 or so, about 20 years after the Great Horse Dispersal, which created the wild uh, horse herds of the Great Plains of North America. Mm-hmm. So it's pre-colonial. It's a story of pre-colonial Native Americans. Um, I did a lot of research on the tribes that existed um, at that time, and more importantly, before that time. A lot of the tribes uh, migrated from north to south, and they came from the mountains onto the plains. And some of these tribes ended up doing well, and some of them not so well. Some of them were, you know, um, rendered extinct by tribal warfare, other mm-hmm. other things going on. But some of them turned into, uh, well, at least one of them, or uh, turned into the Comanche, which ended up who ended up ruling the plains for about a hundred years after they discovered horses and how to uh, harness the horsepower. So um, we had in the South in this time the Great Spanish Slave Rebellion, where the slaves rebelled and. Uh, let all these hundreds of horses free. And so those those horses came into the, the Great Plains and created the first generation of wild horses. At the same time, these tribes were coming down from the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, and um, some of them were discovering um, how to take these beasts and use them to benefit their lives and benefit their tribe. So my story focuses on a young man from a tribe that was very much like one of these pre-Comanche tribes. It's not any specific tribe. I didn't want to. I didn't want to write the history of a real tribe. So I based my fictional tribe on some real tribes that may have or could have existed back in those days. Mm-hmm. And really, it's a story of um, a man who goes on a, a vision quest, which is a, a growing up ritual to find his name, to find his power in the world, to you know, to earn his adulthood. And he discovers something fantastic that doesn't belong in his world at all. And this colors his his life. And it, it enables him to interact with a, a culture of the fantastic. So my, my initial um, inspiration for this idea was I was thinking about how the Native American cultures met, met European cultures on their advance across North America. And the result was basically annihilation because of disease and warfare and, and prejudice and things like that. They, um, Native American tribes were decimated. But what if they had met, what if at least one tribe had met a culture that was not from Europe, but a culture that was from somewhere else, a world more fantastic than our own? What effect would that have on that tribe? What if it changed everything for that tribe and gave them a possible way to avoid the extinction that was all around? So that, that's what turned into this high-flying adventure of the Testament of Tall Eagle. And um, all I can really say about it is that it's got action, it's got 
uh, romance. It's got that everything that a classic adventure has. Um, but it's what's unique about it is that it combines classic fantasy tropes with historical Native American adventure. And I don't know if that's been done before, but I, I, I really, um, I've never thought of doing it before. So I've always wanted to play around with the pre-colonial Native American world. Mm-hmm. I've fa- always been fascinated by that. And so um, this is a story that I think draws upon North American myth and history in the way that traditional fantasies usually draw upon European uh, you know, roots. I wanted to draw from a different well this time. My first trilogy, Books of the Shaper, you know, you could call them more traditional, I guess, because they did have that pseudo medieval type feel, um, yeah. mixed with a Greek, mixed with a Greek type Hellenistic feel. Yeah, um, I'm sure um, many I, of our I listeners have, have um, uh, are familiar with them. Yeah, you know, I've told people that if Stephen King's Dark Tower um, replaced the fantasy sword, uh, the fantasy broadsword with a six gun then Testament of Tall Eagle replaces the six gun with a tomahawk. So both of them are fantasies drawn from American roots. Um, I don't know if I just gave the best sales pitch for Tall Eagle, but, um, (laughs) you know, you ask ask an author to talk about a book and they'll go on and on and on. Completely fascinating. I'm I'm dying to read it. Um, Is it a standalone novel or are you planning any more uh, Um, books? Tall Tall Eagle was written as a standalone, but it definitely has potential. Um, for a series. Um, and my first series I wrote because I got a deal for a series. It was like, Hey, we want three books. And I had written one and I was like, I can do two more. Sure. You know, that's great. Cause you know, you hop at that kind of opportunity when you're a brand new author and you don't have any novels out yet. You know, um, I was a short story guy. So, um, to sell my first novel, it was okay. We'll, we'll take this if you can give us two more. And I'm like, absolutely. And so I did with this, this one, The Testament of Tall Eagle, I wanted to write a book that could stand on its own because I realize now that there may never be another sequel. It always depends on how popular your book is, and it depends on how much does the publisher want you to do more sequels. So um, what I've learned is write it, just write it one at a time. And if, if I do have great ideas for more Tall Eagle books, but like I said, right now I'm working on a novel set in the world of uh, – the key to your heart is made of brass. So um, could there be more books? Yes. Will there be? I don't know at this point, but I would love to do them. I've got this great idea for a book called The Son of Tall Eagle. It just sounds classic. Uh, it sounds like a classic title. <laughs> <laughs> the first novel, the Tall Eagle book, it does chronicle sort of a transition that Tall Eagle and his people make. And at the end of the book, those who survive without giving anything away the survivors at the end of the book are in an entirely new situation. So when you, whenever you end with an entirely new situation, you always leave a door open there that you could maybe go back and explore that. So, yeah, I mean, as a reader, as a reader, that's the kind of thing that, that, you know, when, when that happens at the end of the book, the first thing I do is go on the internet, see if there's another one. Yeah, me too. (laughs) It used to be hard. You had used to, you had to go combing through the used bookstores and nowadays you just get online and, Oh, there it is. Oh, yeah. The wonders of the internet. Um, yes. John, if we could come back to something. We were talking earlier about um, the fact that you just sit down and write and, and write what comes to you. Um, I know that all of our listeners are very curious about writing processes. 
Um, every writer has his or her own specific way to to be creative. What is your writing process? What do you do? Do you listen to music, drink tea? Tell us a bit about your writing process. Good question. Well, I um, I start usually with some kind of a germ of an idea or a seed of an idea that comes to me. And usually I carry that around in my head for a while. And I just kind of let it float around, percolate. And usually it starts to grow, sort of like a flower, you know. Um, it starts to grow from the general idea. And then it gets to the point where I got to put something down, either on paper or if I'm out in public or something, I'll grab my phone and I'll do a voice memo to myself, uh, like Agent Cooper talking to Diane. Like, <laughs> um, a man walks into a bar or whatever, you know, whatever I need. Um, but when I usually I start by putting some notes down on paper, and I do it all digital. I trained myself a long time ago to go straight to the keyboard. Some people like to write everything out longhand before they ever get to the keyboard. I don't have patience for that. Wow. So I will type out just random notes, uh, you know, things that I, things that I, I feel like I'm discovering. I mean, Stephen King has said that we're all excavating our subconscious when we write. And I think, I feel like I'm excavating little nuggets of gold out of my subconscious. And when I figure something out, it's almost like problem solving. When I figure it out, I don't want to forget it. So I got to write it down. And then once I have assembled enough of these truths, I guess I'll call them, uh, which just look like a series of messy notes. Once I assemble them, I start to see the rough shape of the overall story. And once I've gotten enough of these little nuggets that I can see the rough shape of the story and the general era, area where it's going to, then I know I can start really thinking about scenes. And so there's a, there's a, a real transition there from when I'm, when I stop thinking about ideas and concepts and I start thinking about scenes. And once I've got the opening scene in my mind, that is like the first step on the path for me. Now, if I'm writing a short story, usually, not always, but usually I will try to get the end scene in my mind as well. Because a lot of writers better than me have said, always know what your ending is before you start a story. And that's great wisdom because one of the things writers hate to do is start something and not know how to finish it terrible feeling we've all been there so if you know your ending then you know where to start you start you know you start uh, right when things get interesting enough to to look at you know before the before the before the ending comes i don't know if that makes any sense but someone once said start your story as late as possible and that makes a certain weird sense to me anyway so if it's a shorter piece i will find it i will uh you know, just start and I will aim for the ending. And sometimes I'm not sure how I'm going to get there. For novels, it's more fun actually for me because I don't really like to plan out the ending if I can help it. I like to have a general direction. I have certain truths. I have certain facts and I have certain scenes that I know are going to happen. And sometimes these scenes are nothing more than a single image or a feeling. And I just follow that intuition. Um, and and the, the, the novel plot it develops before me very carefully, like one chapter at a time. So for me, I will, I will take it one chapter at a time. And like, I don't really know what's going to happen in the next chapter until I've written this chapter, but I know really where I want to be 10 chapters from now, 20 chapters from now, 30 chapters from now. It's like, I've, I've compared it to driving through fog and you can't see the road, but you can see the road lights gleaming up ahead of you, a series of lights in the fog. And you know, you're on a road, and you know you're, the road you're on is going to take you to each of those lights and past it. But you don't see what's in the road between you and those lights. So I just kind of head for the lights or the tent poles, as some people call them. 
Yeah, and hope you yeah. don't hit a deer on the way. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you, what I've found is if you do it that way, to me, it's, it's more fun. It's more organic. Some people, though, really like to outline. They really like to outline every scene, and they'll have an entire wall covered with, you know, cards and notes and things. If I outline something too much, it takes the fun out of it for me. You know, I feel like I'm going to come out with the same idea uh, as I go, as if I if I would if I if I would sit down and outline it. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. and and sometimes if you, I think if you. If you use the organic approach where the, where the story kind of grows on its own, you'll discover things that you never planned on happening. Like some people say the characters will start to talk to you. It's not that literal, but the story has a sort of a feedback loop. What you put on the page influences what you're going to put on the page. It's very, it's almost like a fractal unfl- unfolding in front of you. If you've seen those fractal uh, animations yeah, where they spin off and spin off into eternity. So I get a little philosophical about this, but the main thing to remember, I think, for all writers is that every writer has their own specific uh, style and method. Everybody has their own methodology, and what works for one writer might not work for another writer. So um, you're, you're, you're also a teacher as well as an author. Um, does being a teacher influence the way you write as well? I believe you teach literature. Is that correct? Yeah, um, I do, and I believe it does because... I have a job where I love my job and I don't have to get up every morning and say, Oh my God, I have to go to work again. I mean, I was like that before I went into teaching. So when I got into teaching 10, 10 years ago, I discovered, wow, this is a better way of life. And my writing really flourished because of that, because I found out that if you have a day job, you hate the negativity of that permeates its way into your creative life. So I had, I, when I, when I turned 34, I realized I got to figure out how to get by in the world and not hate my job and support my writing goals, you know, my, my creative goals. And when I picked teaching, it, it was just the best decision I ever made. So the other thing about teaching is not only does it give me time off summers and holidays where I could really focus on writing from a practical standpoint, but I end up teaching works of literature that I may not have studied. And these works of literature, for, for example, one Floor with a Cuckoo's Nest, Catcher in the Rye. I love teaching Shakespeare. These things, I've always loved Shakespeare, but these things that you study and that you go into such detail analyzing, they really do have an effect on what you do, you do as a writer. I mean, I, I got so much tremendous inspiration out of Catcher in the Rye when I taught it a few years ago. I had never read this book. Growing up in Kentucky, it was much too conservative to read a book like Catcher in the Rye in school. You know, it wasn't until college that a girlfriend of mine said, hey, this is a good book, Catcher in the Rye. And I was into Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard at the time, so naturally I didn't read it then either. But, <laughs> but when, I, when, I started read, uh, getting to, when I started teaching 10th grade and we taught that book, I realized, wow, this book is so, so layered and it's so, so profound. And um, those things really have an impact and they inspire you, I guess. I, I think any type of good literature inspires creativity. Uh, that's part of what it does, especially yeah. if you're a creative person to begin with. And of course, I've always loved Shakespeare, but teaching Shakespeare is what really brings it to life. When you see people going into it and going, I don't like this. Why doesn't he just speak normal? And then by the next week, they're like, hey, this is cool. I really like this play. You know? And they're really getting into it. It's a good it's a good feeling. And, you know, it's good karma, too, because I'm helping people become better writers and better readers. And that's my job, yeah. among among other things. 
And, um, you know, I, I fully believe that the more you do for others, the more success you have. It's good so philosophy. I guess, yeah, I think that, you know, originally I thought about being a social worker um, back when I was going through my, my early, early midlife crisis. And I realized, you know what, I don't have the, I don't have the intestinal fortitude to face kids that are in horrible, horrible situations, but I could be a teacher. And a lot of times as a teacher, you're, you're dealing with those same kids that are having really bad lives and you're like the one bright spot in their day. You know, you're the safe place that they can go to. Uh, you're the one adult who like deals with them on a, on a basis that they can uh, enjoy and, and deal with. And you inspire kids, you know. So there's so there's so many great rewards from teaching. I recommend anybody who doesn't know what they want to do with their life consider teaching. Oh. I, I grew up. My mom was a teacher, and I said, I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to be a teacher because my mom was a teacher, and she used to come home and complain about work as as we all do, you know. Yeah. But then when I turned 35, I realized, you know what? Working in an office is killing me. I hate it. What if I helped other people? I'm good at this. I'm good at writing, and I'm good at reading. Why don't I get into into uh, into teaching? And ironically, I wanted to teach history because <laughs> I thought, oh, that's where all the great stories are. And I really want to be a storyteller. But I was told, you look, with your background as an editor and a writer, you should be teaching English. And I was like, okay. And that was a great, great decision. So the, the, the thing about teaching is it does take a lot of your energy away to the point where during the teaching year, I can't get a lot of writing done. Every now and then I'll crank out a story or two. But really, it's when I, when I, during the teaching year, that's when I'm germinating my big ideas, my big novel ideas. Mm -hmm. And then usually by January or February, I'm starting to turn those into a couple of early chapters. And then when the summer hits, I pull the ripcord and I really start slamming out the novel, whatever, whatever novel it is I'm going to be working on. So that's how I usually write my novels is slow build during the second part of the school year and then really slamming it full, you know, full time during the summer. So I'm looking forward to doing that again this summer. It sounds like a good rhythm. So um, what do your students think of your books? What do they think about um, having a, an author as a teacher? I mean, do they do they read your books? Do you discuss them in class? Well, I teach 11th graders, and they think it's pretty awesome, most of them. Uh, you know, half of them, I guess. The other half, you know, they're, they're, you know, teenagers, not all of them care about books in the first place. But <laughs> even the ones that don't care about books are usually pretty interested when they're like, oh, you wrote that book? And so a lot of them do end up um, – seeking out the books and I, I make sure the school library has a couple of copies of each of my books too well for the done. kids that can't that can't afford to buy them you know yeah. so they um a lot of them um have read them and have commented how they like them and sometimes uh, kids that i haven't taught you know kids that know kids that i've taught will see me out in the quad and they'll be like mr fultz i loved your book i'm like oh thanks it's kind of strange you know because i don't know who this kid is and they're like yeah mr fultz and so it's it's really nice um I think the first question they all want to know is, are you famous? And I'm like, have you heard of me? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> like, no. And the second question is, are you rich? And I'm like, no. Um, if you ever see a movie about one of my books, then I might be rich. But um, I have to explain to them that, you know, as a writer, there's only two ways you can get rich. That's one, by selling your book for a lot of movie money, or two, having a bestseller. And that 99% of writers don't get either. Yeah. So writers write because they have no other choice. They have to write. The stories are in them and they have to come out. That's how I feel. That's how I've always felt. Yeah. I think that if you write for anybody other than yourself, you're you're you know, you're fooling yourself because you can write the best book in the world and no one might want to publish it. But if you know you did a good job and you got that done, then you're free to move on to the next thing, you know. Mm. Um 
And I, I realized a long time ago as a writer that 90% of what I write will never see the light of day. And I'm okay with that because every, I think it, I think of it as everything you write makes you a better writer so that every piece you write should be better than the one that came before it in some way or fashion. That is and the goal, yeah. I, yeah, and I, I train my students that way too. Like every essay that we do, it makes you a better essay writer. So um, I feel like... Um, in my trilogy, Seven Princes, Seven Kings, and Seven Sorcerers, I feel like each book was better than the one that came before it. But by the time that, that trilogy was over, I was really ready to do something new and fresh. Mm-hmm. And so Tall Eagle is a definite step away from the traditional fantasy. Although it does have some traditional fantasy elements, they're com- they are compressed and contrasted against these uh, historical fantasy uh, elements. So I, th- I think it's going to be an interesting read. Um, and somebody said, um, hey, you've created a new type of fiction, tribal fantasy. And I said, I don't think I created that, but I think I'll take it. <laughs> if that becomes the new, you know, if that becomes a new, uh, hey, uh, you know, everybody's writing tribal fantasy now. I, I don't think that'll happen in a million years, but it would be nice. Uh, I've never tried to be a trendsetter. I'm not really a trend follower either, but I'm just trying to write good books that people want to read. <laughs> Well, John, I for one can't wait to read uh, the the Testament of Tall Eagle. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us today. Thank you. It's been wonderful. My pleasure. And uh, we hope to have you back on the show at some future point. Absolutely. would love to. And thanks again for doing the adaptation of The Key to Your Heart is Made of Brass. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was John Arfultz. What an amazing guy. We spoke for over an hour. I've had to edit it down to what you heard, which is half an hour. So interesting, so full of stories. Now, please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you're hearing at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website and are very easy to use. If you have any comments or anything you'd like us to do on our show, please leave your comments on the Triple F website. They are all read. Sometimes we even answer. Here's wishing you a wonderful week. And remember... It's only three days till Friday. Get that beverage ready. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.